Today, Dr. Melanie Burton, a forensic and counseling psychologist, clinical social worker, and licensed addictions counselor, brings you one step closer to a new you, where you feel empowered and on a positive path to growth and well-being. As a solutions-focused therapist, Dr. Melanie Burton can help you live a life worth celebrating by unearthing those long-standing behavior patterns and perceptions that may be holding you back. And now, here's your host, Dr. Melanie Burton. I am so happy, thrilled, and excited to be a part of the BBS radio station family. My name is Dr. Melanie Burton. I am a forensic and counseling psychologist, a licensed clinical social worker, and an addictions counselor. This radio show is for anyone struggling with trauma or mental health illnesses, or who might have a family member friend, child, or significant other affected by trauma or mental health issues. Audience members will have the opportunity to call into the show or even be a guest in the show if that's something you feel comfortable doing. For confidentiality reasons, I ask that you only introduce yourself by your first name, initials, nickname, or by a fictitious name. We will also discuss current events and issues affecting the community. I will also educate listeners on attachment deficiencies and the importance of having a secure bond with one's biological mother and and how having that secure bond can cause pro- and how not having that secure bond can cause problems later in life. This show will will be airing on Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and at 5 p.m. Central Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time. I look forward to helping you heal and hearing your stories, your thoughts, and concerns. So what I wanted to start with today is a pretty uh, sad story and that on January 3rd of this year, Missouri carried out the first known U.S. execution of an openly transgender person and that person is Amber McLaughlin. Now, a lot of people may not have even heard of this because it hadn't been really discussed in the news. In fact, I learned about it the night of the execution because I was watching the 11 o'clock news and it came, the story came up that they executed this openly transgender woman I had never even heard of it. I didn't know an execution was even scheduled to take place this year. 
but CNN sent out an announcement as well. Uh, apparently, Amber was convicted of a 2003 murder and unsuccessfully sought clemency from the governor, and she was put to death by lethal injection. Again, that was on January 3rd of this year. It's the first execution this year. McLaughlin was pronounced dead at 6.51 p.m. The Missouri Department of Corrections said in a written statement. I am so sorry for what I did, wrote McLaughlin in her final statement, which was released by the Department of Corrections. She said she's a loving and caring person. Now, McLaughlin's execution, again, is the first in the U.S. this year, but it's also very unusual because executions of women in the United States are already rare. Prior to McLaughlin's execution, just 17 had been put to death since 1976, when the U.S. Supreme Court reinstated the death penalty after a brief suspension, according to the Death Penalty Information Center. The nonprofit organization confirmed McLaughlin is the first openly transgender person to be executed in the United States. McLaughlin was 49 and her attorneys had petitioned Republican Governor Mike Parson for clemency, asking him to commute her death sentence. Aside from that, from, from the fact that a jury could not agree on the death penalty, they say McLaughlin has shown genuine remorse and she has also struggled with an intellectual disability mental health issues, and a history of childhood trauma. But in a statement Tuesday, Parsons' office announced the execution would move forward as planned. The family and loved ones of her victim, Beverly Gernther, deserve peace, the statement said. The state of Missouri will carry out McLaughlin's sentence according to the court's order, Parsons said, and deliver justice. McLaughlin listed in court documents as Scott McLaughlin had not initiated a legal name change or transition. And as a death sentence person was kept at Potisi Correctional Center near St. Louis, which housed male inmates. McLaughlin's federal public defender, Larry Comp, and the governor's office have said McLaughlin had been convicted of murder and rape. McLaughlin was sentenced to death for Gunther's November 2003 murder, according to court records.
The two were previously in a relationship, but they had separated by the time of the killing of Gunther. By, by the time of the killing and Gunther had received an order of protection against McLaughlin after she was arrested by burglarizing Gunther's home. Several weeks later, while the order was still in effect, McLaughlin waited for Gunther outside the victim's workplace. Court records say McLaughlin repeatedly stabbed and raped Guthner. Prosecutors argued at trial, pointing in part to blood spatters in the parking lot and in on Gunther's truck. A jury convicted McLaughlin of first degree murder, forcible rape, and armed criminal action, which was shown on court records. But when it came to a sentence, the jury was deadlocked. Most US states with the death penalty require a jury to unanimously vote to recommend or impose the death penalty, but Missouri does not. According to state law, in cases where a jury is unable to agree on the death penalty, the judge decides between life imprisonment without parole or death. McLaughlin's trial judge imposed the death penalty. So the jury didn't impose the death penalty. The judge imposed the death penalty. If Parsons were to grant clemency, McLaughlin's attorneys argued he would not have subverted the will of the jury since the jury could not agree on a capital sentence. That, however, was just one of several grounds on which McLaughlin's attorneys and Parson should grant her clemency, according to the petition submitted to the governor. In addition to the issue of her deadlocked jury, McLaughlin's attorneys pointed to her struggles with mental health, as well as a history of childhood trauma. McLaughlin has been consistently diagnosed with borderline intellectual disability and universally diagnosed with brain damage, as well as fecal, fetal alcohol syndrome, the petition said. McLaughlin was abandoned by her mother and placed into the foster care system. And in one placement, she had feces thrust into her face, according to the petition. She later suffered more abuse and trauma, including being tased by her adoptive father, the petition said, and battled depression that led to, that led to multiple suicide attempts. At the trial, McLaughlin's attorney did not hear expert testimony about her mental state at the time of Gunther's murder, the petition said. That testimony, her attorney said, could have been tipped, could have tipped the scales toward a life sentence by supporting the mitigating factors cited by the defense and rebutting the prosecution's claim McLaughlin acted with depravity and depravity of mind. 
that her actions were particularly brutal or wantonly vile. The only aggravating factor the jury found. A federal judge in 2016 vacated McLaughlin's death sentence due to ineffective counsel, court records show, citing her trial attorney's failure to present that expert testimony. That ruling, however, was later overturned by the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. McLaughlin's execution would highlight all the flaws of the justice system and would be a great injustice on a number of levels, comp her attorney told CNN previously. It would continue the systemic failures that existed throughout Amber's life, where no interventions occurred to stop and to intercede to protect her as a child and teen, comp said. All that could go wrong did go wrong for her. So when I first heard about this execution, I had a lot of things that ran through my mind. Number one, McLaughlin was diagnosed with fetal alcohol syndrome. She had brain damage. And I believed that many years ago, state laws made changes and that they prohibited states from executing someone with brain damage or someone who had intellectual dis dis disability due to brain damage. So I don't know what happened here and why the governor agreed to have this woman executed. The crime she co committed was horrendous. It was horrible. But due to all of her trauma and other issues, she really should have been sentenced to life in prison. That's just my opinion. So the other thing that stood out to me was the fact that she was an openly transgender woman. And they ended up sending her to a prison with all men. So I'm under the assumption that she experienced even more trauma being in a male facility. There's a lot of different things pertaining to this case that really make no sense to me. Of course, I had to wonder, would she have been executed if she wasn't transgender? I don't know. The other thing I wonder is, why was this left kept so quiet? 
like I said, I never heard about it until it came on the 11 o'clock news. Never heard about it. I've spoken to some of my transgender clients and mentioned the story to them and they had never heard of it either. So I think the media did a really good job keeping this quiet. So I welcome any phone calls from people who are interested in discussing this further with me and weighing in any thoughts that you might have. I am just trying to understand how something like this happened. And I know there's executions that happen every day, but um, this in particular, I think there, there should have been a lot more people advocating to fight and save her life. They did say that she was remorseful for what she did. So on that note, it would be helpful for me to talk a little bit with you about trauma. So let's start with the uh, definition of trauma. Said they can't see me. My video went off. I apologize. I apologize so much. My video went off and I didn't even know it. But I'm back on. Okay. Back on. So the word trauma is a familiar one. You have heard it on radio, on TV news, in conversations. Trauma may describe the effect of a massive earthquake in El Salvador that has killed thousands, a tornado in Alabama, a plane crash, a murder down the street, or even an unexpected death. You've seen the pictures and you've heard the stories about how people feel when they've been victimized by auto accidents, hurricanes, floods, tornadoes, assaults, robberies, rapes, plane crashes, school shootings, fire, abuse, and other catastrophic events and situations. There are, there are a lot of different ways that people react to trauma. Initially, you may feel a little shock, terror, or a sense that what happened is unreal or surreal. You may feel numb as if you've left your body. And this is a phenomenon which we call 
disassociation. You may even you may even remember all the events and the details of what just happened. If you are a victim of lifelong traumatic events, your reactions might also be very different. A lot of folks who experience trauma after trauma after trauma after trauma have learned how to lock, lock in their emotions so their response to that trauma can be much different than someone who had never experienced a traumatic event and suddenly they experience something really, really horrible and it has a tremendous and long lasting effect on their, their lives. Many factors impact how you react to a traumatic event. Your age, for example, younger people often react more significantly than older persons. Why? Because they've been living on this earth a, a, long, a much longer time. The amount of preparation time you had prior to the event, for example, a hurricane may have several days notice while an earthquake has no forewarning. So with a hurricane, you know the hurricane's coming. You're preparing for the hurricane to come. But in an earthquake, you're not prepared for that to happen. So it comes out of nowhere. The amount of damage done to you physically, emotionally, and spiritually or to your property, the amount of death and devastation you witness and the degree of responsibility that you feel for causing or not preventing the event, these are just some of the factors that can impact your reaction to a traumatic event. So, Unfortunately, a lot of people who experience a traumatic event tend to carry some guilt about it, even though they couldn't prevent it, that it had nothing to do with them, that what happened was not their fault. There's also, different symptoms that a person might experience after experience a traumatic event. For example, the person might suffer from acute stress disorder. We call it ASD. In that situation, if your reactions to the event or events developed within the first few days or weeks after the traumatic incident, you may have developed what is known as acute stress disorder, ASD. And according to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is what we use as clinicians to diagnose our clients, you experienced, witnessed, or were confronted with an event or events that involved 
actual or threatened death or serious injury or threat to your own physical integrity or that of other people. Your response involved intense fear, helplessness, or horror, either while experiencing or after experiencing the distressing event, you had three or more of the following, disassociative, zoning out, spacing out symptoms. You felt numb, detached, or emotionally non-responsive. You had reduced awareness of your surroundings, and you felt like you were in a, just clearly in a daze. You experienced derealization, which is a sense that the world is unreal or that you are detached from or not a part of, the, of your environment. You experienced something unfamiliar with what were previously familiar places. So you can look around the room and you don't recognize anything. You experience depersonalization, which is a disoriented perception of your body, identity, or self, perhaps with an out-of-body experience or feeling of being in two places. You experience the type of disassociative amnesia, which is the, in, in a, in ability, the inability to recall one or more important aspects of what happened to you. Furthermore, you persistently re-experienced the traumatic event in at least one of the following ways. You had recurrent images, thoughts, dreams, illusions, or flashbacks, which is basically reliving the traumatic experience all over again or you felt distress when exposed to reminders of the event. You may also have persistently avoided any stimuli that led you to remembering the trauma. You had chronic symptoms of anxiety or increased arousal, problem sleeping, irritability, poor concentration, increased startle reaction, and bodily, and bodily restlessness. The condition caused you clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or, or other areas of your life. That is, you just couldn't do the task you needed to do. You checked out and you just couldn't get up and go to work every day and function like you normally would have. The condition lasted for at least two days and at least four weeks and occurred within four weeks of the traumatic event. Now, the thing with acute stress disorder is that a person is generally able to recover from it. It's not long lasting. Uh, symptoms could persist for about six months, but it's not long lasting. Then there's post-traumatic stress disorder, which a lot of people recognize and a lot of our veterans who have served our country. With PTSD, 
your reaction to the traumatic events persists for a long period of time. The symptoms don't go away. They last for a very, very long time. And that's when you come in and you see a good therapist like me <laughs> who can give you the tools to help you recover. If PTSD occurs at least six months after the event occurred, then you have developed post-traumatic stress disorder. So let's go a little bit in detail about post-traumatic stress disorder and the symptoms that a person with PTSD might experience. Okay, so first you have been exposed to a traumatic event in which both of the following were present. You experienced, witnessed, or were confronted with an event or events that involved actual or threatened death or serious injury or threat to the physical integrity of yourself or others. Your response involved intense fear, helplessness, or horror, or your perception of the event led to these emotions. Two, you re-experienced the event in one or more of the following ways. You have recurrent and intrusive distressing recollections of the event, including images, thoughts, or perceptions. You have recurrent distressing dreams of the event. You act or feel as if the traumatic event was reoccurring. And you may have a sense of reliving the experience through illusions, hallucinations, and active flashbacks. You experience intense psychological distress or body, body reactions when exposed to internal or external cues that symbolize or resemble an aspect of the traumatic event. For example, sights, smells, sounds, specific dates. Those are what we all call triggers. You make a great effort. Three, you persistently avoid things or events which are triggers associated with the trauma and numb your response using three or more of the following. You make a great effort to avoid thoughts, feelings, or conversations that are associated with the trauma or avoid activities, places, or people that could cause you to remember the trauma. You can't recall an important aspect of the trauma. Your interest or participation in activities is much less. You feel detached or estranged from other people. Your ability to feel emotion is restricted, as is your range of emotions. For example, you are unable to have loving feelings. You have a sense of a foreshadow, a, short, a foreshortened future. For example, you can't see ahead into a far off future 
you do not expect to have a career, marriage, children, or a normal lifespan. Four, you also have persistent symptoms of increased physical arousal that were not present before the traumatic event. And that is indicated by two or more of the following. You experience difficulty falling or staying asleep, irritability or outbursts of anger, difficulty concentrating, hypervigilance, which is being overly watchful, exaggerated startle response, you may be jumpy, Five, all of these symptoms have lasted more than one month. And six, because of these symptoms, you are significantly distressed or impaired in your social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. Now, PTSD um, can also be chronic or acute. And symptoms are considered to be acute if your symptoms have been less than, have been there less than three months and chronic if your symptoms have lasted three months or more. If it is delayed onset, if your symptoms began at least six months after the stressor or the event or events. So that's a little bit about symptoms of PTSD, but let's talk a little bit about what PTSD is. So there are two distinct types of trauma, type one and type two trauma. PTSD is more likely to be a reaction to experiencing or witnessing a type one traumatic event which is a single catastrophic unanticipated experience. For example, a sexual assault, a serious car accident, um, a natural disaster, those are all type one events. Type two events also can be called critical incidents. If you have experienced a type one trauma, you have already had a detailed, clear memory of what happened. Your memories remain alive unless you work through them. You may find yourself frequently looking for a way to explain what happened or a way you could have prevented what happened. Again, a lot of PTSD survivors place a lot of guilt on themselves and they think, man, if, if I didn't do this or I should have did this or I should have did that, then this wouldn't have happened. And again, it's not the survivor's fault that it happened. It's some other circumstance or the fault of someone else, quite honestly. So if you have experienced prolonged, extensive exposure to tra traumatic events, you may be suffering from a disorder that has not yet been named in the DSM-5. 
1.5, which again is the clinical manual used by treatment providers to determine diagnosis. This disorder was first described by Judy Herman in 1992. And it's either complex PTSD or disorders of extreme stress, not otherwise specified. Persons who may suffer from complex PTSD include prisoners of war, hostages, who were held captive for long periods of time, concentration camp survivors, war zone survivors, cult survivors, battering victims, domestic, vi domestic violence survivors, sexual abuse survivors, and children who have suffered years of other types of trauma. So when I talk to my clients about complex PTSD, I explain to them that a person who suffers from complex PTSD has experienced trauma after trauma after trauma after trauma after trauma. What happens when you experience trauma after trauma after trauma after trauma? Well, you start suffering from other disorders, including depression, major um, serious anxiety, uh, these disorders can turn into other more chronic disorders. For example, complex trauma survivors end up experiencing symptoms of disassociation where they actually feel like they are outside of their own body. Um, they have a, a sense of, uh, a, no sense of real reality. And, and a, lot of, a lot of really uh, horrible cases, a lot, of, a lot of that can result in a person having multiple personality disorder, although there's a very small, small number of people in society who suffer from multiple personality disorders. It is real and it does happen and it is always tied to trauma. So um, let's talk a little bit about some of the symptoms of complex PTSD. If your traumatization occurred early in life, was prolonged, and was inter interpersonal, number one, you could experience an alteration in the regulation of affect, emotion, and impulses which consists of chronic effect dysregulation, where your emotions have a life of their own. You're not in control of them. They have a life of their own. Difficulty modulating, managing, and regulating your anger. So, you know, you flip out at the drop of a hat over things that can be really small, 
tick, tick, boom, boom, that's you. Difficulty modulating or managing and regulating your anger, you can't control it. Self-destructive or suicidal behaviors. So that can result in a person um, cutting or mutilating themselves. We're in situations like that, they actually do feel the pain, which makes them feel some sense of emotion. Um, difficulty modulating sexual involvement. So it can affect your sex life. And impulsive and risk-taking behaviors, which is sometimes um, called self-destructive behavior when a person is on the highway driving their car 120 miles per hour under the influence of alcohol. And then there's alterations in attention or consciousness, for example, amnesia, where you might forget a large part of your life, things that have happened in your life. You just can't remember. Transient disassociative episodes, short periods of zoning out where you're just not there. You're not there. Depersonalization, again, which is an out-of-body experience. Somatization, where which consists of how your body holds your trauma so that you could experience digestive system pro problems where you constantly have stomach pain, um, indigestion, nausea, chronic pain, cardiopulmonary symptoms, conversion symptoms consisting of psychological problems that can that get converted into physical symptoms. Um, for example, hits with a hammer on the back of a child become unexplained back spasms for the adult. So as a child, if you were hit in the back by a hammer as an adult, you end up having back spasms. And you may not be able to connect it to your childhood trauma where by you were hit with a hammer. Sexual symptoms and panic. How's oh, my earbud there? And then there can be alterations in self-perception, which is how you see yourself. And again, I talked about the chronic game, the, the chronic guilt, shame, and self-blame, feeling that you are permanently damaged, feeling ineffective, feeling nobody understands you, minimizing the importance of the traumatic event in your life. So something so horrible, you might end up trying to rationalize it or be in denial of exactly how horrible it is. And that can be an unconscious type of behavior. 
Then there's alterations in perception of the perpetrator. And this isn't, this isn't needed to diagnose PTSD. In, in, you know, with PTSD, simple, sim, sim, when a person experienced PTSD um, because of a perpetrator, we don't use that as, our, as part of our diagnosis. But a person with chronic PTSD might begin adopting the distorted beliefs of the perpetrator about yourself, others, and about what happened as true. Idealizing of the perpetrator, preoccupation with hurting the perpetrator. You know, when I think about all of this, I think about domestic violence survivors. You can also end up having alterations in relation with other people. You end up with an inability to trust, re-victimizing yourself, and victimizing others. There can be alterations in systems of meaning. For example, how you see life, how you see others and spirituality, like if there was a God, why would he let this happen to me? Chronic PTSD survivors also experience despair and hopelessness, loss of beliefs that previously sustained a person. So what is complex PTSD? And if you have complex PTSD, you may have some or more of these personality issues. You may have problems with your ability to regulate your emotions, especially anger. You may find it hard to stay present without becoming amnesic, which is an inability to remember. Disassociative, which again is feeling spaced out, depersonalized or preoccupied with the trauma. You may not see yourself as function as a functioning functioning in individual who can avoid feeling helpless, shameful, guilt, guilty, stigmatized, alone, special, or full of self-blame. You may not have the ability to separate yourself from your abuser or perpetrators without either being preoccupied with revenge, feeling gratitude or accepting the perpetrators interjects is true. Now interjects are someone else's beliefs that you take into your head as your own and then believe them. Again, we see this a lot in domestic violence survivors. You may not have the ability to have positive, healthy relationships with others without being isolated, withdrawing, being extremely distrustful, failing repeatedly to protect yourself or constantly searching for someone to rescue you or for someone you can rescue. 
and you may not have the ability to find meaning in your life and maintain faith, hopefulness, and a sense of the future without feeling despair and hopelessness. That is complex PTSD. Now remembering is a, con is a reconstructed process. And a lot of times not remembering is a form of trying to keep yourself safe. It can be a defense mechanism and, a, and it's an unconscious defense mechanism. But when it comes to remembering the trauma, it is a restructive process where it's like putting the pieces back together and not merely a retrieval of a, re of a record of past experience. So you, you generally forgot more than you remember. So in therapy, this might help you begin to put those pieces together. Your memories can also be influenced and distorted over time. So what you think you remember, you might start distorting some of that. Restructuring a memory does not bring up everything in exact detail. So you might work on restructuring and remembering the event, but what you remember doesn't include all the details of the event. And it is possible at times to believe strongly in memories that are totally inaccurate. It's not necessary for you to remember everything about a traumatic event exactly as it happened. But what is important is to recover an, enough information so that you can process the memory and put it and its accompanying emotions, body sensations, and thoughts into your past. So, it is highly recommended. Well, let me say this. A lot of people who experience trauma try to handle it themselves. Um, they feel like they can put it behind them and they can heal from it. But in cases of complex PTSD, it's really important that you get some help because complex PTSD is so severe and the symptoms that accompany, accompany it can be lifelong. That's where you end up in, in the hospital. You're constantly in and out of inpatient psych centers because of trying to recover from your complex PTSD and you're just not able and other mental health symptoms also start persisting, such as major depressive disorder, 
chronic anxiety. It can turn into borderline personality, border, border, not borderline personality, but bipolar disorder. So it's important for anyone who has experienced any trauma to really get some help by a good therapist to recover from it. Recovery is possible. It's definitely possible. But like I tell all of my clients, it's not just coming in, sitting down with a therapist and talking about what's going on and what's affecting you in life. It's about doing things outside of therapy. I'm not, a, I'm not just a talk therapist. I give my clients work. They work. And when they do their work outside of therapy, that's when you see the change. That's when you, the therapist, see the change and the, and the client sees the change. So it's important to do things outside of therapy like meditate. I teach my clients dialectical behavioral therapy, which is DBT. There's other things that you can do when you start feeling really anxious, which a lot of uh, trauma survivors and uh, people who suffer from PTSD experience. Uh, they, they might just start automatically start feeling really, 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 really anxious and feel like they're going to have a, have a panic attack. And in situations like that, I teach my clients how to ground themselves, how to be able to bring themselves down. I also teach them tapping where you can tap on different pressure points to help get you emotionally regulated. Tapping, tapping. So if you use the tools and you do the work outside of therapy, then you most definitely can recover. Recovery is possible. It is always possible. And for many trauma survivors, they survived that traumatic event and they can get on with their lives because they have the strength to do so. Well, it looks like my time is coming to an end. I hope you enjoyed my first show. <laughs> I, I'm sorry for the little technicality that we had where you couldn't see me, but I look forward to seeing everybody again next week. So get ready for my out pro. Bye.